Hey folks, if you've been tuning in over the last couple months, you've heard all about the GameTime app and how it can save you some serious cash on last-minute tickets to sports, concerts, all types of shows. I like the GameTime app because I like to get a view from the seats that I'm thinking about purchasing before I commit, and their two-tap purchase process makes it fast and easy to get the right tickets without wasting time. And we all need extra time this time of year especially. Well, now GameTime is hooking you up for the holidays with $10 in credit. Here's what to do. Download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store. Click on the My Tickets section of the app. Create an account. Then, under the billing section, redeem the code THEATHLETIC. Once again, that's THEATHLETIC, all one word, for $10 off your first purchase. That's free money, people. Credit is only available to the first 1,000 people who redeem the code THEATHLETIC. And it expires at the end of the year. That's coming up quick, December 31st, 2019. So make your move quick and score last-minute deals on tickets. Rates and Barrels, episode number 59. It is the morning of December 23rd, 2019. Happy Festivus to those celebrating. Uh, we will air a few grievances over the course of this episode. Feats of strength, uh, maybe we'll talk about like guys hitting the ball really hard or something like that, but Eno and I aren't going to fight each other and uh, do anything like that, so feats of strength will be reserved for your own living room, not something we address on this podcast but lots to talk about more free agent signings Hinjin Ryu has a new team Dallas Keuchel has a new team Uh, even the Tigers are getting in on the free agent frenzy adding some players to their roster as well so we'll talk about those moves and we'll wrap things up with our beer of the year selections that's right beer of the year as 2019 comes to a close Housekeeping real quick, we are available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you want to listen to podcasts now. So if you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, we would really appreciate that. It helps other people find the shows. Uh, Some of you might be listening to the show for the first time. If you are, welcome. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Everything we do is included with a subscription. Eno, how's it going for you on this Monday? It is good. We are live from fabulous Paso Robles, where we have rented a ranch and brought uh, 15 members of our family together for uh, a Royal Rumble of sorts. Yes, Feats of Strength will be at your house then later this (laughs) evening. There there will be an actual brawl (laughs) in the common area. (laughs) If if previous uh, Christmases are any indication, there will be at least one fight. We'll see if it gets physical. <laughs> For uh, details on that fight, at Eno Saris on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> holiday fights always fun to watch on social media this time of year. Uh, people are happy, I think, in Toronto. Let's start with the Hinjin Ryu signing. He gets four years, $80 million to go north of the border. Uh, I saw a few people pointing out that there will be a lot of Blue Jays hats in Korea now. It's just how it works. Ryu is a very popular <laughs> Korean-born player, but uh, this is a team that does have a nice young core, and they're a yet another franchise getting on board with spending money this winter to try and better themselves for 2020 and beyond. It's just it's nice to see this trend continue, even as we've now moved into the second-tier free agents. Yeah, the, the list of teams that have signed free agents to try and improve includes the Blue Jays, the Tigers, 
uh, and the Rangers as long along with the Yankees, uh, as you might have expected. So, um, you know, there's a, a real interesting thing going on, I think, in the White Sox, where I think maybe some of the next generation uh, teams, the teams that feel like they're coming up after the Astros and Yankees, um, are getting ready for their pushes. And in order to do that, you really do have to sign your guys maybe a year ahead of when it seems to make sense. You know, you can't just piddle along and then just sign people when you're good, you know, because the off season comes before you know how good you are really. (laughs) So what if the blue Jays, what if Vladdy takes a real step forward and all of a sudden they have a great young lineup, you know, it'd be a shame if they didn't sign a pitcher. So I'm glad that they signed a pitcher I had uh, Hyunjin Ryu going for four years and $80 million to the Angels, um, who I thought really needed top-end talent. It looks like they're going to do it by trade if they do anything. I do really think they need another pitcher. Uh, but now they're going to be looking at people like John Gray, Matt Boyd, um, you know that ilk. Although the list of tradable starting pitchers that would be an asset for the Angels is actually not that high. So... Uh, there's a chance they go in with this rotation. For the Blue Jays, um, I, I do think that they need another high-end pitcher, uh, and I'm not sure that's coming up through the organization. Uh, I'm not sure where that's going to come from. But at least get one, and get Antenna Roark, who is a, a capable dude, and put together a capable rotation, and maybe you can do more like the Milwaukee Brewers and have a really good bullpen um, that succeeds, uh, you know, with uh, with a okay uh, starting staff. So, you know, there's uh, this was a good signing for them. I don't know what it means for Trent Thornton. Ryan Borucki was hurt most of last year. I have to think that Bo- uh, Thornton is probably still the fifth starter going into the season. Um, and between you know Thornton, Borucki, and Shoemaker, it's not that all that likely that all three of them will be healthy. I think to start the season. Yeah, and I keep looking at Yamaguchi, a player they signed just about a week ago now to a two-year deal. I think even though he was a starter and a reliever in Japan, he probably profiles more as a reliever coming over. I mean, is that a fair assessment at this point? I think so, and that's what we said about the Cardinals guy, Kwang uh, Hun Kim. Uh, we saw that he kind of did some starting relieving in Korea, and I just assume when I see that, that it's more likely they're coming over to relieve. And, and you'll see that with, for, with American players, too. Uh, somebody like Drew Pomerantz. You know, when you see what he did last year, he started and relieved. But why did he get paid $30 million? Because of what he did when he was a reliever. So um, I, I have to think that those two guys coming over are more likely to be relievers. And if you look at the Blue Jays' bullpen, they need help there, too. I mean, it's, Giles is good, but I think behind him... I, I like for example, if you ask me who's the closer if Giles isn't, I would have a big giant shrug emoticon. Yeah, I I was just thinking the same thing. They don't really have that quality depth to bridge the gap from starters that don't necessarily get really deep into starts. So we'll see if they're able to find a way to to get some bullpen help. I mean, some of these guys that are listed as potential starters will end up in the pen. Uh, Barucki, Anthony Kay, Jacob. I mean, Wagus if Thornton Pack. was actually a reliever, he'd be a pretty good one. I think he could be their best reliever after Giles if they decided to do that. 
Yeah, so Thornton still has some value if you got him in a dynasty league. Um, you know, I'm hoping it's a deep dynasty league because it wasn't the greatest year. But he still he spins the ball really well. Late in the season, he was actually changing, um, you know, his pitches around a little bit in their shape and movement. So there's some opportunity there to sort of take advantage of a lot of spin, a good feel for spin, um, and maybe not his ideal pitch mix. So I wouldn't necessarily be looking at pitch projections for Trent Thornton. Uh, I don't know a 5.10 ERA is either true and then he's in the bullpen or he has more like a, a, a four, 4.10 ERA and he's a starter. So um, either way, I think he could be useful and uh, could be the next closer if they, if they send Joss back in this year. One more question as it pertains to this signing. You look at where Ryu's been going in early drafts, right around pick 100 overall, uh, near Sonny Gray, you know, a little bit later than Jose Barrios, a little bit later than James Paxton, slightly ahead of Carlos Carrasco and Madison Bumgarner, but just in that general portion of the list. I think people are viewing him as uh, a fantasy SP2 in a, a 12 to 15 team league. The only concern I have with Ryu comes down to health. I mean, he's had some major arm injuries that have cost him a lot of time. And, you know, the 182 and two-thirds innings we saw from him last year with the Dodgers uh, is a pretty big outlier compared to the workloads he's put up in the previous five seasons. Uh, I mean, leaving L.A. is going to the AL East especially. It's going to be a relatively difficult transition. So maybe he gets a slight ding uh, on the ratios projection. But are you confident in Ryu health-wise to the point where you'd be comfortable drafting him around that range? I think so. Uh, one of the things that stands out to me is that I think the pitch, I think the home run rate projections are all wrong. Um, other than 2017, uh, Ryu's had the ability to suppress home runs. The type of uh, pitches he has, the, the wide arsenal that he has, the command that he has, all are things that could help him suppress home runs. For example, the cutter has the lowest exit velocity of fastball-like pitches. Um, it has the lowest BABIPs. Uh, so, and the cutter's been really important to him. So, you know, I, I would say that, uh, and, and on top of that, if you look at, I did some stat cast park factors, and Dodgers say, if once you get a ball in the air driven hard, um, you know, Dodger Stadium is the friendliest place in baseball uh, for home runs. And Toronto was 15th or 16th. And even if you look at traditional ones, just like the Fangraphs Park Factors, uh, the difference between Dodger Stadium and Toronto is on the order of one or two spots on a ranking. And they're both kind of middle of the order. So I would say that for me, a 1.3 home run projection is too high. And if you take that back down to 0.9 or so, uh, I think then he's got a mid threes ERA, uh, a good whip. You know his BABIP, uh, you know for for two seasons now has been has been uh, in around two eighty. You have to do that too to get to mid threes. But you get, I think he'll have more like a mid threes whip, uh, and I'd put him down for like one hundred and fifty innings to to reflect the injury risk. So that kind of pitcher, there are a few of them. Um, so it's not a unique package in terms of fantasy. Uh, but you can lump some of them together and, uh, and take the faller. Um, I, I think he's somewhat similar to like a Charlie Morton with just fewer strikeouts. 
That's exactly the guy I was going to say. This is just like the Charlie Morton situation a year ago. They, they're different because Morton throws a lot harder, but they're similar in that both have catastrophic injuries on the ledger, but they have well above average results when healthy. And if you yeah. gamble in that spot, the payoff could be that you end up with a pitcher that people are taking 40 or so picks earlier, 50 picks earlier maybe this time next year. And if it goes wrong, then you're chasing innings in that spot. Man, it's a wide range of outcomes, but it seems like it's appropriate pricing. What shows up more often on a waiver wire than a pop-up starting pitcher? You know, I think the three, the two easiest things to get on the waiver wire are starting pitching or relief pitching. And if you got the 2018 Ryu, where he only pitched for 82 innings. But he had a one nine seven ERA. Like, how mad are you? You know what I mean. Like, you could probably add a hundred and you know ten innings of a four ERA off the wire and still come out ahead on that spot in your roster. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't break you if he's that good over a half season's worth of innings. But it's uh, it's a troubling injury history to uh, to put it mildly. But the Jays have have been pretty active over the last week. I mean, they made some trades earlier in the offseason as well. They got Chase Anderson from the Brewers to bolster that rotation just to get some innings in. And then they end up kind of swapping in a weird way. Uh, Justin Smoke for Travis Shaw. Those players, of course, were both free agents. But Smoke signs with the Brewers. Shaw signs with the Blue Jays. Everything went wrong for Travis Shaw last year in, in ways that I didn't think was really even possible because he had shown improved plate discipline in the previous two seasons. He got up to a 13.3% walk rate, lowered his strikeout rate to 18.4% in 2018 when he hit 32 home runs. He looked so much more sustainable coming out of 2018 than he did coming out of 2017, and his 2017 didn't even look that bad. And here we are looking at his 2019, and it's just chaos 33 percent k rate uh the, the power went away completely he was hitting a ton of infield fly balls uh, lost his job of course and uh is there a reason to believe in a travis shaw bounce back with a fresh start in toronto excuse me i had to I had a little chorizo burp um let's see here travis shaw is he going to be better than a chorizo burp this year uh you know one thing that was actually interesting about his breakout year in 2018 for the Brewers, or 2017-2018, was how low his strikeouts rates were. Because in the minor leagues, he had strikeout rates that predicted more like the 25% strikeout rate he had with the Red Sox in 2016. And I would say that his power rates in the minor leagues predicted more of a kind of 20 home run hitter. Of course, with the ball, maybe he is a 20 home run hitter, and today, all the 20 home run hitters are 30 home run hitters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that I actually don't see too much reason to argue with his projections, which have a 25% strikeout rate, a 209 ISO, uh, a 230 batting average, and 20 home runs in two-thirds of a season. So... You know, I, you know, that, I think, represents the risk well that he isn't a full-time player. Um, and a one-year $4 million contract with the Blue Jays, uh, with the, the roster they have, uh, there's a chance that, um, you know, Rowdy Telez takes uh, some at-bats. He's not. Rowdy Telez is also a lefty. Um, but, you know, there's a chance that if he's not that good, 
some of the DH at bats could go uh, to like Teoscar Hernandez or Teoscar Hernandez, who's a righty, could end up uh, platooning basically weirdly uh, with Travis Shaw. So, um, you know, there's some risk in the way that roster is constructed that he doesn't get a full blow. But if he does get a full blow, 230 with 30 homers uh, seems totally within his grasp. Good OPP too. It's not sexy, but it's good enough to be profitable, I think, for a guy that people are, are burying. He's outside the top 400 in the early NFBC ADP. A really good uh, AL-only CI pick, I think. It's, if the cost stays under $5, players like this um, that aren't young but do have a little bit of upside in terms of bouncing back uh, are a pretty good investment if, as long as they stay under 5 bucks, because, you know... You could spend a dollar on someone who may not even start, you know, um, or you could spend three or four on someone who's probably going to give you at least, you know, three or four hundred ABs. Yeah, for four to five in an only league, you might get 12 to 15 back value wise with exactly those skills. And that's, and- a, that's a weird proposition because everyone's like, oh, I want. You know, I want to, I want to, you know, Joe Adele for three or four bucks instead. And yeah, you have the chance of like a $20 season from Joe Adele. Uh, but you also have a really, really high chance of a $0 season from Joe Adele. Yeah, or just having to wait longer than you want. I mean, I think the Angels are clearly pushing chips in for this year, but I, I right. think the point holds up. The the boring player coming up a and down year like, gets buried. But- but even even the angels could just be like you know we don't think he's quite ready yet. They're definitely I, I think they're not going to do day one with him because uh, they can keep him longer and it's not like he blew the doors off of the AFL and um, uh, the minor leagues last year. No, I, I don't I don't think it's opening day where they say uh, service time be damned. We're just going to go ahead and right, bring him up, yeah. but it's going to be two to three weeks into the season. It's it's an early call up for for Joe Adele with the way. Uh, they have put things together so far. The other big free agent pitcher signing, I think, was one that you also predicted in one of your columns. Dallas Keuchel goes to the White Sox, three years, fifty-five and a half million. They add Gio Gonzalez as well. But starting with Dallas Keuchel, it's important for teams like the White Sox trying to get to that next level to have a high volume of quality innings, and that's exactly what Dallas Keuchel should bring them, uh, especially when you have so many questionable arms with a lot of talent. We've talked a lot about how much we like the direction of this franchise, but you have a lot of what-ifs with Ronaldo Lopez and Michael Kopech uh, and Dylan Cease, and you, know, you have Carlos Rodon coming off of a major injury, so it's hard to rely on him. So a guy like Dallas Keuchel really kind of fit perfectly uh, as that number two starter behind Lucas Giolito. Yeah, actually, I... Went two for two on the White Sox because I, uh, I I nailed the other one too. The all important Gio Gonzalez to the White Sox. <laughs> and a one year, five million dollar deal, which I actually I'm surprised I got that one right because you know it, it I didn't really though because it's like a two year deal. But with the five hundred thousand dollar buyout, it's actually uh, he's guaranteed one and five. Uh, any case, uh, Keuchel, uh I had I had I had at four eighty instead of the basically three fifty six three sixty that he got. And the reason I did was because I was talking to a uh, pitching coach, a major league pitching coach, about Keiko, and he was saying that he thought Keiko was going to get more than people were expecting because of the command. And he was saying that 
when he looked at where Keiko put his sinker and changeup and his ability to put them in exactly the same place. Uh, he thought that was a really exciting skill that could last even as the velocity goes down because you're, all you're talking about there is relative velocity, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, I think as long as he can stay above 88, 89 or so, then he doesn't get into the danger zone um, where uh, hitters seem to really tee off on, you know, 87 and below. So as long as he can kind of keep his velocity steady for a few years, I think he'll at least be average. And I think the hope for the White Sox is that, you know, he's he's more important in year one than he is in year, in year four or year three. And the youngsters pass him by every year. You know, like right now, he's probably their number two starter. Uh, hopefully next year in 2021, you know, either Kopech or Cease is ahead of him, you know? And, and rinse and repeat, basically, to the point where, you know, in year three of this deal, hopefully Keiko is your fifth starter in a Tanner Roark style, where he just, you know, puts out 150 innings, and, um, and they're pretty good, you know, some blow-ups, but, you know, useful at the back end. So maybe even they're going to the playoffs, and Keiko becomes, you know, their first lefty out of the pen in the playoffs. So mm-hmm. I, I think... Uh, I think it was a good deal. I think that's what they needed. They needed uh, some. They needed some innings with a little bit more upside than just like a, a Tehran or something. Yeah, we'll talk about Tehran in just a moment. He's he's a puzzle to, to put it mildly. Uh, but yeah. I do like the Geo addition too. Again, more of an only league guy as opposed to a mixed league guy. But I think yeah, maybe I wonder, th- I wonder if I'm going to be in on him because it. It fits the package of like, you know, a $2 pitcher for me where I'm like, you know, this is better than a shot in the dark. But at the same time, like that park is not super. Uh, but at the same, on top of that, like he just came from a park that's not super nice to pitchers and he had a pretty good season. So uh, I'll have to do some more deep digging on Gio Gonzalez. One of the reasons that Gio Gonzalez is any good is the same reason that Ryu is good. Lots of pitches. And he's developed decent command over time. It's just his command is not as good as Ryu's. So. Um, that's what makes me nervous about about Gio Gonzalez. Yeah, I just I think it's always been a, a case where what everyone wanted from Gio as a fantasy starter and what he actually did never quite lined up. But if you yeah. look at the more recent body of work, you can find quality innings at a below average price, and Gio is likely to provide those. So good good move there too for the White Sox. Oh, I did have a, a cool little thing on Keiko real quick. Uh, I did. Three year, uh, three year average of command plus, and uh, it goes Tanaka number one, Hendricks number two, Nola number three, Jordan Zimmer number four. And people say, well, that invalidates your list. I would not think so. I think that basically that means that that's the only skill Jordan Zimmerman had because mm-hmm. he did not have a fastball. <laughs> yeah. So the the fact that he had superior slider command was the only thing keeping him in the major league. So I think it still works. Zach Greinke. I mean, all the other names are, are perfect for this. Zach Davies, uh, Alex Wood, Ross Stripling, Dallas Keuchel. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a fun little list to kind of consider command-wise what, uh, what the shape of your career can be, be like. So Keuchel's career, because he's on this list with Greinke, it, it could go better in the sunset years than people expect. Yeah, that's an interesting multi-year leaderboard uh, just to hear. I mean, Tanaka being on there, too. Uh, is a nice, pleasant surprise. I, I think it's only because he loses the splitter 
at times, and because yeah. he loses such a valuable pitch, I don't associate him with the top of a command leaderboard. But his bulk pitch is that slider, and sometimes that may be out of the zone or not in these perfect corners that people want uh, for their for other command stats. But at the same time, he he obviously knows how to put his slider where he needs it. Let's talk about the Angels for a moment because uh, I saw this note come by. It was from uh, Fabian Ardaya, covers the Angels for the Athletic. And he's completed his rehab portion of Tommy John, but now the, they're going to be kind of careful with him. They're going to shut him down for the remainder of the offseason uh, and really be careful with how much of a pitching workload he has in the winter months as far as preparing for the season goes, which makes me think, they're going to be really, really careful with him as a pitcher in 2020. And it's almost in some ways more difficult to figure out like how to project Shohei Otani now usage-wise than it was going into his first season with the Angels. At least then we kind of had a, a sense for where he was at physically. Even then, I think he had an ankle injury he was coming off of. But what are you doing well, with Shohei you know. Otani this year? The, the the thing that ended up going to Tommy John, like he did have a, a partial tear of his UCL coming over. And there was an argument about how much we should we should look into that and how much we should worry about that because Masahiro Tanaka famously has a partial UCL tear and has done so well. The problem is that Masahiro Tanaka does not depend on velocity and does not throw as hard as Shohei Otani. And Otani went and, you know, through sat like 97, 98 and... Blew out his UCL, so uh, I I'm kind of I'm I'm in on Otani, and I have been over and over again. And I know that the results some people can cast aspersions on the results, but given the prices I've paid for Otani, I have never once felt like I got screwed. It's a good feeling um, because last year I paid, I think. Eight dollars for Otani as a DH in AL labor, and for my for my efforts, I got a two eighty six average, eighteen homers, twelve stolen bases, and two thirds a year. I think that's got to be worth eight bucks. Uh, the year before I had Otani, I got I got I actually got even though I had to choose between hitter and pitcher on a weekly basis, I got like half of his homers and half of his stolen bases because he was a starting pitcher to start the year for me, and then he switched over to being a hitter for me, you know? So I got 50 innings of a 331 ERA and four wins, and then I got like 18 homers on top of that. So the fact that he can do both things, as long as you're not drafting Otani the hitter or Otani the pitcher, means I don't care, unless you're asking me to spend... 25 30 bucks unless you're asking me to spend like a top four round five round pick on him i'm i i'm into it because there's lots of different ways he can help my team i think it's weird in, in a situation where he's you know split up into two players or if you're thinking about him as like a pitcher only he's going to pitch no more than once a week most likely that was sort of how it worked in 2018 anyway but they're they're saying it's probably going down the same way that route if he's going five or six innings at a time and he's pitching once a week, that's about 150 or so innings for a cap. And then you got to adjust down from there, of course, because of the injuries. I think this is a lot like, you know, whereas like a Hinjin Ryu might have a, a baseline projection of 150 innings because of his injury history. 
Otani with his injury that he's coming back from, and then the usage probably gets projected for 100, 110 maybe. Like, wh- where do you fall on the workload projection for Otani, even as someone who trusts his skills? They'll start to say 110. I think just back of the envelope, uh, I'd, uh, I'd consider it 100. If I had to buy him as a pitcher only, I might be out. Because 100 innings could easily become, you know, 60, 75. Uh, and then you probably spent real money. Um, and I just generally don't love getting a pitcher the first year after Tommy John. I know that some people come back and they're fine. And the younger you are, the better the, better the outcomes. Uh, but I do think there's a little bit to the research that command is not great in the first year. Otani was already down uh, near the bottom of all starting pitchers in Command Plus, basically around where you Darvish was. And so, here's a guy you don't have a you have a guy with not natural great command now coming off an injury that sometimes saps your command. Uh, plus, he's such a unique athlete. If I had to buy him just as a pitcher, I might not. Yeah, I, I understand that position for sure. And ADP is a little high right now. Uh, 85 overall for pitcher only Otani in the NFBC at that price. Yeah, that's no seems, thanks. Yeah, that's too much. And that's going to come down. Makes though. you choose between the two. Is a pitcher only a hitter only? He's listed only as a pitcher in the ADP reports. I'll, I got to double check the forums, but he was a pitcher only the first year that he came over. Whoa! So no and no NFBCers got his his batting stats last year. Or they got him off the waiver wire. They didn't get him the first year for sure. Uh, I got to look back at last year. I didn't have oh, him anywhere, so I don't remember how they ended up handling him. But uh, yeah, that's it's tough, right? I mean, like I have him in a dynasty league where he can be used in any given week. I can switch him between pitcher and UT, and that's and, surprisingly useful. I was worried drafting him at labor the first year that I would never use him as a hitter, and I was just drafting him as a pitcher. Uh, but it's surprisingly useful. They get injured, but he was hitting. You know what I mean? Like, I, I got, you know, you can, and then there are weeks where, you know, maybe he's not going to start this week, and, or maybe the start that he does have you just don't like, then you get a full hitting, hitter st- uh, stat lineup. And, you know, your, your team can be changing too, where all of a sudden it just needs a hitter way more than it needs a pitcher, you know? Yeah, that can definitely happen. And as a hitter, I, I think what we saw last year was, you know, obviously, a, a relative step back to what he did his first season, but it wasn't far off. I I, I believe in those skills that he was bringing. Yeah, to the table. I wish he hit uh, you know a little bit fewer ground balls. But part of the reason why he hits the ball so hard is because of his attack plane, and he's he's got you know some things in common with Christian Yelich. If they just said, "Hey, we're not going to use you as a pitcher," which they're not really in a position to do right now, if they had landed a free agent pitcher that would change the complexion quite a bit. Uh, since they didn't, I think that makes it even more important to keep him healthy and to get Otani out there for a start each week. I mean, what would his 2020 ceiling be as a hitter? If they said, you're just going to be oh the everyday God. DH or you're going to even play a little I mean, bit of the I, outfield now. Cause we're not worried about rehabbing you as a pitcher anymore. I think it would look, I think like, I don't want to be blasphemous or anything, but like Christian Yelich, like I think if you gave him a full season, he would hit, 290, 300 with like 35 plus bombs, you know, 20 stolen bases. Yeah. So a first, he's a first round talent in terms of what he could do as a hitter, but without the volume. And and that's, that's what I'm focusing on. You know, as long as he's got the H and the P next to his name, 
I'm buying a guy who could be a first rounder either way. And maybe it's not likely that he is a first rounder in either thing. Just to have that talent on my roster and figure out how to use it is exciting and, and I think valuable. And there's a certain cost level where it makes sense. Now that cost is rising with every year, but I think with the Tommy John, it's still going to be low one year. And I think one of these years is going to have one of these breakout seasons. And he's going to be a first rounder for like five years. It's going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Hope I have him the year before uh, that yeah. actually <laughs> plays out that way. But yeah, as I as I look at Otani, you know what? He's listed as a, a UTN, a pitcher in the actual draft room, even though he's not listed as both on the ADP report. Okay. So I, I think there is maybe. So the, that's probably why his ADP is high. That's got to be right. Like at, yeah, at that yeah. at that price in the eighties, where you could use so him as that? both, that makes sense. Fifth round or something? Fourth round? Fifth uh, round? Sixth round? Sixth round? Yeah, that's about where I would start to get interested because. You're like I said. You're buying a potential first round bat and arm in the sixth round. It's um, that's a good time to take a shot too. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm gonna have to see. I just started a draft and hold. I'll uh, I'll keep you posted in the next <laughs> week or so once I get to the sixth round. If I end up scooping up Otani, uh, the Angels did add a pitcher in free agency, Julio Tehran. I just I, I I wish we were at the point in Tehran's career where he was getting a contract, you know, like Keuchel or like Ryu, because if you put us in a time machine and set it back to eight years ago, I would have been certain that Julio Tehran was going to get a big payday in free agency. But he just doesn't have it anymore, and the velocity's been falling. Of course, the uh, the secondary stuff doesn't really wow me. Like, is there anything that you see that you like with Tehran going to Anaheim? Ah, uh, man, you know, it's interesting that his Babbitt for his career is 268. Um, that's interesting to me because his projections have him returning to like a 300 Babbitt and almost two homers per nine based on his fastball velocity, his lack of strikeouts, his fly ball rate. But, you know, he's only really had one year with a really bad home run rate in 2017. And last year, with all the homers leaving the park, he had a 1.1 homer per nine and a 266 Babbitt. And that's what kept his numbers there. So, of course, you know, a projection system says, ah, screw all that noise. You know, here's a 5.3 ERA in your projection. Thank you very much. Um, But what if he does have some soft contact skill there? What if, or what if that's just the result of having a ton of fly balls? Um, you know, some of that, but I tried to do a little digging to be like, okay, what does this soft skill look like? And so I looked at like fly ball exit velocity. He's just middle of the pack, you know, doesn't, Hmm. nothing stood out for me. I did last year. I did five years, middle of the pack. So I would say that the, the larger part of research says he's going to be bad next year. There's a, there's a, a slight chance that they've they've figured out some soft contact skill that I can't quite put my my hands on though. Yeah, because he's got I mean, he's got a seven year stretch where he's been lower with his ERA than his FIP would make you think. Like that's that's hard to do seven years in a row, especially when you throw as many innings as he does. Tehran's out there a ton, so there's yeah. some there is something going on with him. But the thing that I think bothers me the most about him is that we've seen that walk rate really shoot up these last two years. 116 and 11% the last two seasons, over four walks per nine. 
that, that was never part of, of who he was early in his career. There was like that flash in 2015 where he got up over three for a season. Uh, that came back a little bit in 2017. 2017 was the first year of their new park, right? That was the first year of SunTrust, and it was playing where lefties were just crushing home runs in that park that year, even though it hasn't played that way uh, as extreme in the last couple of years since. So that, that was such a funny year for a whole bunch of reasons. But I think this is just bulk innings that are going to be okay, not great. I don't think there's a, a another positive level on the level of like the 394, 117 that he put up in 2018. Like maybe he keeps the ERA down, but that whip's not coming back with that walk rate. It's impossible. Yeah. And then like over time, he's really, uh, you know, gotten rid of the changeup uh, and become more of a two breaking ball guy. Um, I did look at his command plus and he is uh, 63rd in the big leagues among starting uh, among pitchers uh, with more than a thousand pitches last year. And he's right behind Shane Bieber which surprises the heck out of me. It's yeah, um, like those guys being near each other on any list is puzzling cuz Bieber's a top 10 pitcher right now. Right. And and you could you could look at the pitchers that the Angels have put together and see a ton of sliders, right? I mean, this is this is a breaking ball team here, Tehran, Bundy, Haney, uh Canning. So and, and well, Tony's got the splitter, but this is a breaking ball team, so maybe they uh, have identified some pitchers that have good breaking ball command, and that's that's where they're going after. I mean, that's that's as plausible as anything else. So uh, it is true; it, d- it does seem really clear that they do not, they are not into spending a lot on starting pitchers uh, year to year and and giving them a lot of years. So maybe I should have seen that before uh, I had Cole going to them. I just think they were at the extremes. I think they were interested in Cole. They just they're staying away from that middle. They're staying away from yeah. that second tier entirely because they think they can maybe get second tier results on shorter term deals from Tehran types without making that longer sort of term commitment. Uh, the Tigers added a couple hitters over the weekend, and they have outspent the Cleveland Indians in free agency to this point. We'll see if that holds up as we get further into the process. But C.J. Crone and Jonathan Scope go to Detroit on one year deals. I guess from a fantasy perspective, it, it's good because they're both going to play a lot. Like the Tigers are, are terrible, so there's not really anybody there to push those guys for playing time. I don't think there's a ton of value coming back their way at the trade deadline if those guys end up becoming you know, bench bats for a contender. Um, but I guess we got to give the Tigers some credit for spending some money, even though they're they're not very good. Like they they got the young pitching. That if the pitching all comes up at once and is healthy and good. They could become a lot better pretty fast, but it doesn't usually happen like that. Yeah, I mean, I really like Therese Kubal, um, and uh, Kate. They've got Casey Mize, and I think there's even another um, Matt Manning too. He's close. Matt Manning, yeah. And I would personally, uh, I, there's things that I like more about Manning and Scooball than Mize, but um, you know, those three coming up and Fulmer at some point coming back. Um, you know, could pair with Boyd to be uh, to be useful, um, to be a good rotation, to be a strength even, and that would mean that some of these uh, pitchers, you know, that are currently in the starting rotation could or our starting rotation prospects could end up in their bullpen too. So it could be a decent bullpen. But I just you know this team, and I like I like 
them for buying veterans and trying. And then because it'd be easy as heck if they don't like what they see from Scope to either cut him, DFA him, you know, trade him to some other uh, contender to be a backup, you know. Same thing with Crone. Like they're they're not they're not taking they're they're just uh, taking the chance that these guys that either the team is better than they expect uh, and it's good that they bought them or that the player is better than they expect and they can sell them. So you know that that part um, makes sense. But in terms of like developing their bats, like I don't know, man. Heimer Candelario, I thought had real promise. And he just laid a real turd on us last year. I mean, a 203 batting average with a 26% strikeout rate and eight homers in like a half season. Uh, and, you know, like as much as Nico Gruderum is exciting for all of his tools, like now he's back into like a utility role. Uh, he's 27 years old and, you know, he's like basically a league average bat without a real positional home. Uh, and, I'm, I'm listing their successes. <laughs> yeah, they, and those are guys too. Candelario came from the Cubs organization. Goodrum was drafted by the Twins. Like they, they didn't get to develop those hitters from day one, but they haven't done anything to make them a lot better. I mean, Goodrum, they just gave them an opportunity to play. So I think there is a, a fair question to, to ask: like, can they develop their own quality yeah, like bats? Stewart hasn't. You know, there's some there's some upside there. Like he can hit the ball really hard, but they have not really unlocked that out of Kristen Stewart, and that's their that's their guy from the beginning. And also, considering they've been tanking for a while and trading people away, shouldn't they have traded for somebody good? Shouldn't they have position prospects that we're excited about? I mean, exactly. <laughs> they, they just um, Riley Green. I, they just drafted him, but like other than Riley Green. I go through that list of position players, and I don't want those guys in keeper and dynasty leagues. I, I don't want those guys playing Nobody. for my major league team. Like I, I'm very skeptical of Daz Cameron have, at this point. Like he had a horrible year at AAA. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty skeptical. I have Willie Castro um, in one deep dynasty, and there's some chance that he puts together a good strikeout rate with league average power and actually steals some bases. So there's like an even the projections are for 260. Uh, what would be 15 homers and 15 stone bases in a full year? Um, so that's a that's deeply useful. Um, with a chance that he kind of develops a little more patience and and improves the OBP. Um, and speed these days is, is so rare and has to come from young guys. So Willie Castro should be a name that you know, but it's not a name that a 12 teamer should be should really be, care about unless he starts the season as the everyday shortstop and stealing bases. Um, and even a 15-team leaguer, probably we're talking bench. So this is more of an AL-only play. Uh, and that's the only name that I could come up with. I see him, yeah, AL-only on draft day. I do see him as like a watch list sort of guy for mixed leagues. Yeah. I mean, if I think I may have texted this to you. I can't remember where I brought this up. But if you said, find another Kevin Newman for 2020, yeah. I think that's what you might have. I think he might be a Kevin Newman type fantasy player, and there's definitely leagues where Newman made an impact. Maybe a little more power, a little less in terms of steals, but good average, decent plate skills on a bad enough team where he could probably lead off and pile up a lot of runs scored as well. Yeah. So, uh, and Goodrum can move to the outfield, and Victor Reyes is terrible. So you know, there's an opportunity there, even if like even if Goodrum is listed as a shortstop right now. 
Um, you know, Victor Reyes is, I'm not, I'm sorry. Terrible is a little bit strong, but like he, he really overreached last year and he was league average. So yeah. Terrible is the word some people would use. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to buy in on a guy like that. I mean, yeah, like no power, not even a great strikeout rate, no OBP really, no walk rate. I mean, what are you banking on with Victor Reyes? Speed? That's the one thing that nobody cares about these days in real baseball. The hit tool has to continue to just be really good, and that's about it. Yeah. And even that's like he's low, low strikeout rate. He was lower in the minors, though, so maybe you know, maybe with more exposure to big league pitching, he can get that down under 20%, keep the average like in the projected range. He'd be like a 5% walk rate, 16% strikeout rate guy that hits 280 with a low OBP and barely gets to 15 homers. Yeah. yeah he's not. Still not still not a guy that like, you know, starts for the Astros during their run. No, but it, it, I guess he he is more of like an outfield Nico Goodrum equivalent though, like good enough to play while they rebuild. Yeah. Whereas other guys they've been playing haven't been and that's why crone and, and scope make sense for them that's a dangerous investment even in a one-year league like you, you you could say like oh look at these projections you know 15 stolen bases 273 average i'm going to take him an al only and he'll be he'll be boring but fine that's fine but you know there is the risk that he hyper candelarios on you yes and the but, team tries to figure something else out and goodrum's all of a sudden the full-time left fielder and then you then you spent three four dollars on nothing so i would think that like I, 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 this is a piece I want to write in this upcoming, like before this upcoming season, is the relationship between war projections and fantasy busts. And I was looking at the, who's the DH? Uh, Danny Santana. Danny Santana for the Texas Rangers. Oh, this is, this is exactly what I'm talking about here with the Tigers. There's, there's upside and there's downside. And Danny Santana is the reason. So Danny Santana right now has a really nice projection. 250 batting average, 21 homers, and 20 steals in 600 plate appearances. Sounds great, right? That's like free money. Here's his war projection. Minus 0.1. So something's not right. Either he's going to get 600 plate appearances and he's going to be worth more than minus 0.1 war, or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there, there's. It's almost impossible to that this will happen. Get that much playing time as an average, like a replacement level player, or worse. Like you yes. generally don't play that much, especially if you're playing for a team like the Rangers, who clearly are pushing towards doing something this year they're spending some money they get their new stadium they, they they're they're not going to be the orioles like you can get away with that projection on a team as bad as the orioles otherwise there's risk because any team that's actively trying to get better to win games right now isn't going to take that now i think the the thing that you'd want to look at in a study like that is okay well where where does that negative value come from in in santana's case you know his versatility defensively. I did the air quotes thing there, which doesn't help since this podcast is <laughs> in a video. His versatility might be working against him. He takes a, a pretty big hit for his defense. He can play all over, but he doesn't play any place particularly well. So that drags down his his overall value. Even though what he was doing as a hitter, he was eleven percent better than league average. Which uh, since he debuted in twenty fourteen, we never saw anything like that from him at the big league level. Um, and that just sort of like 
erases everything he was doing as a hitter and the projections well the projections are weirdly like skeptical of him from uh from a skill standpoint because of how much he struggled for four years up and down yeah. in the big leagues and the exit power surge, exit velocity power surge last year might not be uh included like right and it's gonna it's gonna miss some of his best skills so that it, it, it's the type of late breakout that projection systems are are gonna struggle with a bit but i i would agree with your premise that the the average player or the i keep calling it the average player a replacement level player with a good fantasy projection is extremely risky and yeah. you have to be very careful <laughs> about having too many players like that and thinking oh i got my 20s 20 guy in in the in the eighth round or 10th round or i forget what his adp is right now i can look it up in a moment but uh, there's this idea that, you know, oh, well, it, it doesn't matter because it's fantasy. It's like, well, no, it does matter because the thing that drives his playing time is his real-life yeah. value. And if he's not yeah. able to get on base enough or if his defense is bad or both of those things are true, he starts to lose playing time and you start to lose counting stats and you have to account for that. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the, the other way that he scratches both itches, which is his defense is projects to be bad and his OBP projects to be bad. And sometimes you might say, well, in a batting average league, I don't care about OBP, but you do. Because that matter, the OBP is where it determines where he plays in the lineup and if he plays at all. So if he has that 295 projected OBP and poor defense, it doesn't matter how much power he has and how much speed he has. So anyway, that's, that's a risk. I think Victor Reyes' projection is for .7 wins in uh, most of a season. Um, but I think that also captures some of the risk in him. Maybe it's a little bit less risky because the Rangers are trying to be good, whereas the Tigers might just put Victor Reyes out there all year. Um, but it's, it's, it's something worth thinking about when you're um, putting together, especially with sleepers. You kinda, you, with sleepers, you'd be like, oh, who cares? You only paid a buck or two for him. Well, there's the opportunity cost of not paying the buck or two for the other sleeper that was better. It's true. Yeah, I mean, you, you miss out on the other breakout when you choose the wrong lottery ticket when you throw the wrong dart late in a draft or, or late in an and auction castro castro plays a good shortstop in terms of uh like his defensive value so even if there are some flaws to his offensive game like that's something that i think they may settle on in the end and just be like okay castro like we'll give you three or four years to see if you develop you know some offense but you're the best defensive shortstop on this team Real quick, Zach Godley, they add him to the mix, trying to get some innings for that rotation. I mean, had the one really good season in 2017 and has been struggling since. Had strikeouts despite the poor ratios in 2018. Lost the Ks, had walk issues, had a home run rate issue last season. Uh, pitched to nearly a 6 ERA last season. Is there any reason to believe that we could ever see something in the neighborhood of the 314 or the 317-114 ratios from 2017 from Zach Godley again. I don't know. I don't think so. He scores really poorly uh, on Command Plus, and if you actually look at the bottom of Command Plus, it's all relievers. Uh, he just... I don't think he can command his pitches enough to throw the curveball 40% of the time. And maybe he can command the curveball, but then his command of his fastball is so poor that you really kind of need to be able to command two pitches. And I think he can only command one. It's, it's rough. And the velo on the fastball. You can give him a two or three mile an hour bump in the bullpen and he's still not throwing gas out there since he's averaging oh, you know, 90 Yeah, right I guess now. if he moves to the bullpen, 
there's a there's a chance that we could see those ratios. Yeah, because then he could might be 92, um, 93, and um, lessens the uh, importance of command uh, of a secondary pitch because he really just needs to get through three people. Um, I could see I could see him having a good year out of the bullpen. Yeah. If they don't need the innings right away because they have other guys that are healthy, that they think have more upside, they should just make that conversion as soon as possible to build up that value and see if he takes to that role. Uh, Michael Franco goes to the Royals. So Hunter Dozier going to play more in the outfield. Whit Merrifield going to play more in the outfield. I liked Franco for a long time. I had him on a bunch of teams. It obviously has not worked out very well. Uh, the main thing that draws me in is that he's a, a low strikeout rate power bat. I know he's got plenty of flaws as a player, uh, but when you know the non-tender deadline passed and he was one of those guys who emerged as a, an early December free agent, I thought he was a lottery ticket you know, worth taking the chance on just because he's still, relatively speaking, young, and I, I think he can potentially get to a level that would make him an above-average player, like a two, two-and-a-half win sort of player on a, a typical basis. Yeah. You know, I think Franco actually, in retrospect, helps us see the relative importance of average exit velocity versus barrel rate. If you look at his barrel rates, they're middle of the pack, and they haven't really, they've improved a tiny bit, but they really haven't really improved. He just sort of remained middle of the pack and hasn't gone anywhere with it. If you look at his exit velocity, it looks nice. He's kind of an 89 to 90 cut type guy um, in terms of exit velocity. But and even as he's raised his launch angle, his barrel rate really hasn't responded. So there is a chance that these things click, that next year he has the same sort of 89 mile per hour exit velocity and maybe a 14, 15 degree launch angle just like he did last year, but more of those pitches are hit as barrels. Um, that is that possibility. He has some of the parts, uh, but given that his barrel rate has just stayed very steady in the, in the sixes, uh, 6%, I, I think that, uh, he just has a problem barreling the ball. I don't know what it is. Like he can make contact, but, uh, the, the actual powerful contact is way fewer and further between than you expect. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating, but you just don't normally see guys that hit the ball that hard who strike out that little, uh, so at least he landed in a spot where I think he will get a chance to play every day again. And there were situations where he could have landed in more of a reserve role where we'd be seeing more of like a 350, 400 plate appearance sort of cap. I mean, I think he could he could get over 600 in Kansas City. And, you know, they have some experience coaching this type of player. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, minus the actual power part, like it's like Mike Moustakis. You know, Mike Moustakis is kind of like a you know, 6% walk rate, 16% strikeout rate. Uh, what about his defense uh, power guy? And, you know, maybe they can, they can unlock uh, that little bit of power from, from Franco that, that would separate him from being a total bust um, uh, and, uh, and from being useful next year. I, might, I could see him being an AL only play. Yeah. I mean, his projection is for a win and a half. He's not... He's not on this list like a Danny Santana. No, no. There's there's actually a little more real-life floor to fall back on if, if that's where you're going to go. And there's a big difference in price. Danny Santana has some people who are buying in entirely to what he was doing last year and right? driving up that ADP. That's why I brought him up. Yeah. yeah. It's weird. I, I didn't... I thought... He found he, his ADP, right? 
I've, I've got my tab here. I'm going to track it down in just a second. He, somebody picked him in the first round this year. Right. There's, there's, one, there's one really high draft that um, will, you know, that'll stand, I would assume, as his earliest pick. That was 15th <laughs> overall. Like yeah, that 15th? happened. 15th? Yeah. 15th, yeah. So uh, his, his ADP is 120, even with that, that one out higher. The other guys in that range that have an ADP around 120 have early picks of like 80... 90 <laughs> <laughs> and then Danny Santana pops in with a 15 yeah amazing let's go to our beer of the year segment we talk about beer of the week uh once a week on this show a little less of course during the winter especially when shows fall early in the week but you know it's been a great year uh, beer wise and I was kind of going through my untapped app and, and thinking about some of the trips that I'd gone on uh this year you brought me some Pliny the Elder which I'd never had before uh, back in the spring to Phoenix for labor. I thought it delivered on the hype. Um, the thing I talked about a couple times this season is that the beer around me keeps getting better. You know, Double and triple dry hopped hazies are things that I didn't really have a lot of access to just a couple of years ago. Those are prevalent. Eagle Park in Milwaukee, the Brewing Project way up in Eau Claire, which is kind of by the Twin Cities. Um, you hooked me up with another beer that I had on opening day, Surreal from Elvarado Street. Or maybe it's mm-hmm. surreal. I think it's surreal, though, the way they, they put it out there. Um, mm-hmm. So lots of choices for me. But my selection is uh, a spin on my all-time favorite Belgian beer. And it's the St. Bernardus App 12 that was oak-aged. I had that back at my, uh, my Bomber Fest back in the summer. And it was... It was the kind of beer that I, I was waiting for that perfect occasion to open, and that perfect occasion never really came, and I realized you don't need a perfect occasion to drink a good beer. Uh, I thought there was a chance, though, that barrel aging App 12 was going to ruin it. It was going to make it you know just kind of fiery and kind of give it that, that same burn that you get from a lot of, of barrel-aged stouts. Uh, it didn't happen that way at all, though. The barrel aging process on that really kind of complemented just like that malty, sweet, dark fruit flavor that I love in that beer. Mm. And the oak came through perfectly. Like I, I like that that clear, like woody taste that you get from an oak barrel. You can taste it really prominently if you get like an oak barrel cider, especially. Um, I, I love that. And the warmth from the barrel, that burn was moderate. And it, it was just perfect because it, it balanced everything out and actually added something good instead of just overpowering some of the flavors that you get when you drink just the regular app 12 yeah yeah that's amazing uh i wish i had an experience like that to fall back on um i uh i'm looking at my highest rated beers of the year uh and uh predictably most of them are alvarado street so I had to give a brewery of the year, I'd give it to Alvarado Street, which uh, their DeLorean dust and their uh, contains no juice were both uh, uh, five-star beers for me this year. And uh, I think they were fun too because they're a slightly different take on the hazy beer. The DeLorean dust had that cryo dust that we've talked about on the podcast before um, where they've taken hops and reduced it just down to a dust that gives you an almost uh, spicy, bitter feeling, even on a beer that is otherwise not very bitter. 
Um, so it kind of gives you a way to clean up uh, all the sweetness and makes you want to have another sip. So I think DeLorean Dust was uh, a standout for me that way. But um, I hate to kind of talk about it too much. You know, Alvarado Street and Moonraker, my two favorite breweries, if you're in the Bay Area, you can find them in in your beer uh, thing. So, like, I don't know. Like, that means how many people are listening? <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe so, maybe 5 to 8%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, I had... Double Nelson from Hill Farmstead uh, was a, a five-star beer for me. And that that I had out of the trunk of, of someone's car uh, at an A's game. Um, that was really fun. <laughs> yes. But, the best uh, way to have beer. You know, I had a, a, a Jester King a Cherry a Sour Modern Dansk uh, that was also good. All of these are so, like, up my own butt. Like, you know, like... like you really have to live really close to these places to get them. <laughs> I wish I had more of a national beer of the week. I want to have a, a beer of the year. I want to have a beer of the year that anybody can get to. And I think it actually might be Lagunitas Daytime. To me, like uh, I've always loved that kind of beer that's along the, um, the Firestone Walker Easy Jack way of thinking. But uh, daytime was uh, super uh, cheap, I think, even, um, and super available to people. And it allows me to also highlight their Born Yesterday uh, Fresh Hot Pale Ale, which is my favorite pa- uh, Fresh Hot Pale Ale. And allows me to say one little thing on my soapbox. Not every beer company, every brewery that quote-unquote sells out and makes a deal with a large distributor or a larger brewing company reacts the same way to that process. Not every company sells out totally. I think Firestone Walker and Lagunitas are still making really good beers. Um, and now I can at least put one beer on my beer of the year list that everybody listening can get. <laughs> uh, and that means that if you're in an airport, you're, you're drinking better beer than you ever had before. On an airplane, you're drinking better beer than you ever had before. So, yes. It is really cool that Moonraker and Alvarado Street are making great beer locally. Um, and who knows what would happen if they sold out and what their beers would look like, you know, if you ramped up the distribution. But, you know, not every gold not every beer's brewery that sells out is Golden Road. You know, I never really liked Golden Road's beers before they sold out. So, you know, I'm not concerned about it. But Lagunitas, I've followed along uh, from you know when they were a smaller company to how huge they are now, Firestone Walker, same thing. And I, I remain uh, uh, true to them. Like, I remain uh, not necessarily loyal customers where everything they do is amazing and, you know, uh, roses grow out of their ass. But, like, you know, they do really good be- beers and they're available to people. So just wanted to soapbox there a little bit because it's the end of the year and that's what people do, I guess. Hey, it's the appropriate soapbox. I mean, you got to air your grievances. Some people just yeah. <laughs> immediately trash a brewery when they do get that, uh, for them, like big business break, really. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what it, it's, it's success. It's like, it's like, when you're, it's like when your band, your favorite band becomes famous, like your, or your, your new favorite band that other people don't know about and they go on tour with someone else that's really famous and then all these new fans come along and they listen to the one popular track and you get mad about it. It's like, that's what your band is trying to do. Like they're, they're trying to make money and, you know, become right. famous. 
like if you care about these people, they just got a big break, you know, and they, they this is what they were kind of working for. I mean, yes, they were trying to make some good beer and there's some artistry, especially with the musician angle. But, you know, they're all working, too. They're all trying to make money. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I think that, uh, you know, sometimes it's overblown. And then sometimes the places like it's OK to not drink Golden Road, but just, you know, it wasn't that good to begin with. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, you can find some of those uh, beers we mentioned uh, as part of that Beer of the Year segment, wherever it is you're going in this holiday season. That St. Bernardus App 12, I mean, it's from Belgium, but it gets distributed all over the States. So that, That's true. That one actually is actually widely more available. attainable. That's true. The oak-aged variant, though, like that's a little harder to find just because they don't make that much of it. But the, the original is outstanding. It's, mm. it's the blue-labeled one, the monk toasting you. Uh, they make a Christmas ale that's really good, too. So if you happen to see the App 12 and you see that little red label Christmas ale sitting next to it, the Christmas ale is worth uh, trying as well. Uh, as always, you can reach us via email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. Uh, we can take those emails as mailbag questions. Sometimes we'll just flip you a quick response back. Twitter, of course, he's at Eno Saris, and I am at Derek Van Riper. We hope everyone has enjoyed this episode, and we hope you guys have a very safe and happy holiday season. We are back with you in 2020. And apologies for my loud family. Uh, I got into the quietest room that I could get. But uh, as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.